We have a lot to go through today. We're starting a new sermon series today, so let's go ahead and get into it. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verse 43. If you don't have a Bible, a couple options for you. There's probably one under your chair, and you can look under there. If you don't have one and, and, and you need one, that is our gift to you today. You can feel free to take that home with you. You don't have to sneak it in your purse or under your shirt. You can actually freely take that home with you guys today. There's also going to be scriptures on the screen behind me. Uh, you can also use your phones, your version apps, or you can go onto the Facebook page of Impact City Church and go ahead and uh, find the scripture of the day there on the Facebook page that just posted. And while you're there, go ahead and check in and let someone know what's going on here at Impact City Church. Well, today we're starting a mini-series within the greater series of the Gospel of Mark called The Journey to the Cross. The Journey to the Cross. And what I want us to see in this series for the next about eight to ten weeks, what I want us to see in this, this series is I want us to see just what it took for Jesus to get to the cross. Like, what did it take for him to get there? Like, how hard was it for Jesus to get to the cross? What did he have to endure? And what does it mean for us? And how should we respond properly to the idea of someone going to the cross for us? Now, if you remember last week, we found Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying on his hands and knees. He was praying a desperate prayer. It was a really desperate prayer. His prayer was this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So basically, Jesus knows that the journey to the cross is about to begin. And he's stressing out. And what he is saying is, Lord, Lord, if, if you have any amount of mercy on me, if, if, if anything in your heart moves you, if anything in your heart moves you, could you please just remove this cup of suffering from me? Like, make it another way. Like, make, make, this, like, make this happen some other way. I know that I have to go to the cross. You want me to go to the cross and die for the sins of everyone in the world. But I just, like, I have a hard time dealing with that. And he prayed this over and over and over again. He didn't want what was coming to come. And what was coming was basically the cross was coming. Death and pain was coming. And the full wrath of his father, God, was going to be poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus prayed this prayer over and over and over again. But God remained silent. And God's silence was proof to us and for everyone to know that the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins is through the bloodshed and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we learned last week that it doesn't matter what religion you are, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter how good you are or, or what you do throughout the week, that apart from Jesus Christ, you have no salvation. That apart from Jesus Christ, you will not enter heaven. And we said that was one of the hardest things to say as a Christian to someone who's not a Christian. Because it makes John, uh, God look like he's unloving but it's actually the opposite, that he was so loving that he sent his only son to earth as a sacrifice for people who he knew were going to sin against him. We covered that last week. We said that Jesus was going to have to go and suffer the wrath of God on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't have to do it. And he ends his prayer like this. He, uh, last week he said that his prayer ended, he said, not yet not what I will, but what you will. And he gets up and he tells his disciples, it is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going to see that my betrayer 
is at hand. He said, guys, you know, I have come to realize, I prayed to God, and he is not answering my prayers, so I know that what I have to do is what I have to do. And so, you know what, I have, I have come to terms with that, I have accepted that, and then he says, let us rise up and let us go and do what is about to be done. And he said, my betrayer is at hand. It means that my betrayer is coming. It is time for us to do this. Let's get to work. And that's exactly where we are today. The start of the journey to the cross. The start of what is fixing to happen. And John read it. I'm going to read it again to you guys. Mark 14, verse 43. This is where we're at today. It says, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him with a crowd of with swords and with clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, who was Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, which is totally cool. By the way, I'm like, as a man, like, that is awesome. You know? Sorry, side note. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out against, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him, and they fled. Now here's where it gets a little weird. Verse 51 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. Verse 52 says, but, they left, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> now there's countless little side note here. There's countless theories as to what the heck those two verses mean in Scripture, because there's really, you only find it in the, in the Gospel of Mark, but, but it's in there for a reason. And so there's a couple of theories as to who, who is this kid? Like, like, why did he do this? Like, what is the significance of that, right? And just a little side note, uh, this is only written in Mark, and so many theologians believe that maybe it was Mark himself, like as a young, younger man, and maybe Mark was kind of following them at the, moment, at the time, and maybe that was why only he described it. Some people believe they might have been the owner of the garden that Jesus was in, and maybe the, he was just there uh, at night with a linen cloth or something like that. Uh, some say it might have been Lazarus that was raised from the dead, and I'll explain a little bit about that in, in just a second. Others suggest and say that because it was a young man, that the same terminology used for young man was also used when describing the rich young ruler. So they say, well, maybe this young man was the same rich young ruler. Honestly, no one knows. No one knows who exactly this kid was, but what we do know is that he was holding a linen cloth and he left it there, and he ran away butt naked, okay? And so, um, you know, if you've, that, and that's a great way to end the party, by the way. That's a and many, wow. And so, so he ran away naked, right? And the cloth that he left behind was typically used to wrap up the dead bodies before burial, okay? So maybe there's some symbolic thing there. Maybe there's some type of reasoning, like Jesus it was now going to be, you know, dead, and he left the cloth there. I don't really know. No one really knows. And that's a sermon for another day, but what I want us to focus on is the fact that Jesus was captured. Like, I want us to hone in on that today. Let's read that again, beginning in verse 44. It said, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
And they laid hands on him and they seized him. They laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Now, verse 46 was actually the completion of what Jesus had predicted way back in Mark chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark 9, 31, Jesus actually predicts this moment that was fixing to happen. He says this in Mark 9, 31. He says, For he was teaching his disciples and saying to him, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. The arrest and capture of Jesus was, for the most part, pretty effortless by the, by the people coming from the, uh, the elders of the Jewish council. There wasn't like a big fight. In fact, the only one who did the big fight was, was Peter. He went all crunk and he took the sword out and he sliced someone's ear off. Like I said, which is pretty cool for us men. Because like, if you think the Bible's boring, I, I, just, I, I love the fact that he protected his rabbi like that. Like That's the type of, type of men that you want in your life who are willing to do whatever it takes to protect you. So Jesus knew it was going to happen, okay? Man, all you guys are be cutting people's ears off next week. Uh, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew that was going to be done. And, and because of that, he was able to prepare for that. If you remember last week, we said that right before he got up from praying, he said, yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. He knew it was going to happen. And he allowed himself to be delivered into the hands of violent, evil men. Not taken, but delivered. He allowed himself to be delivered. When you get something delivered, it is delivered. And usually when someone knocks on your door and there's a package, you get excited. It is delivered. It was given to you. He wasn't taken. He wasn't seized with some type of violent act. He wasn't like knocked over the side of the head and dragged out. No, he was delivered into the hands. He was given into the hands of these men and he did it for our sake. Jesus was delivered into the hands of evil men. And he endured the hands of evil men. So listen here. So that the hand of the evil one, Satan, may not ever have authority over us. Let me say that again. Jesus was handed over into the hands of evil men. So that the hands of the evil one may not ever have authority over me and you here today. That's what happened. Freedom is never free. Freedom is never free. Someone had to pay for us to be able to be free from the oppressions and the authority of the evil one in this world. Someone had to pay for that. Someone was Jesus. He paid for it with his life. Going willingly to the cross for us. Going willingly into the hands of men who were evil and sinful men to capture him. It was a perfect, perfect plan. But we are not perfect people. We are not perfect people. And it's because of that I want us to wrestle with two questions here today. I want us to wrestle with just two questions here today for the remainder of this message. And it's this. Christians, I want you to understand what it cost Jesus to be delivered like that. Like, what did it really cost him to be delivered like that? What was the expense that he had to pay to get to that point where he was, you know, willingly delivered into that hands of those people? Then I want us to contemplate this other question. What is the proper response to that cost? Like if Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful people, and we know that today, what is our proper response to that? How do you respond to something like that? What is the right way to respond? So first off, what did it cost 
to be delivered into the hands of, of evil men? What did it cost to be delivered into the hands of evil men? I believe the answer for that can be found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church of Corinth as a response to the church starting to stray away from the gospel. And that happens sometimes. We plant churches as church planters. We, there's, there's different denominations, there's different things, and churches get planted, and they started off really well. And then they start to stray away from the gospel. And they start doing things in different ways. And this is exactly what is going on here. The church is starting to believe other theologies. They're starting to believe other doctrines. And Paul is writing the letter saying, no, that is wrong. Let me remind you about what it cost Jesus to actually die for you, the bride, the church. So in this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is reminding the church all about the gospel, what it means to them. And he reminds them of the cost that Jesus paid for them. He says in verse Uh, 21 chapter 5 verse 21 he says for our sake he made him who knew no sin saying God made Jesus who knew no sin Paul is reminding the church and us today that Jesus was created sinless that if there was ever a man who ever walked the earth it was Jesus and he was perfect there's never been another perfect man to walk the earth I'm sorry ladies your man is not perfect you may think he's perfect, but he ain't perfect. Believe me, we ain't perfect. Y'all just, we ain't perfect. We ain't perfect. I'm just going to say it again. Paul is reminding the church that Jesus was created sinless, and for eternity's past and for eternity's future, he has always been with the Father, sinless, and in a relationship with his Father, free from sin, in a perfect, loving, communal relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus comes to earth sinless, the perfect example for how you and I should live our lives. Don't look to any other way of life but Jesus. If you want to know how to live your life, look at Jesus. He was sinless. He was perfect. Strive to be like him. So surely a man like this on earth must be respected. I mean, this is the son of God, God in the flesh here on earth. He must be respected. But instead, he allows himself to be captured and delivered over to the hands of evil men. He was sinless. He was perfect. He lived with God in perfect community for eternity past and eternity future. And a man like this should be revered and respected here on earth. But instead, he was delivered over to the hands of evil men. In short, Jesus had to shed all his righteousness and all of his glory to allow these men to touch him. For these men to come at him and to capture him, Jesus had to literally shed all his righteousness, all of his glory. In order for Jesus to be delivered over to men like that, he had to get rid of all of his glory, all of his righteousness, in humility, allow them to to do this to him. And you see it here in the Gospel of Mark when he says this, he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and with clubs to capture me? He says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. What he's saying is like, guys, you know me. You were there when I was teaching you. You know who I am. In the deepest parts of your heart, you know who I am. You know I'm the sent one. You know I'm the Messiah. 
And you're coming at me with swords and clubs, bro? You know who I am. But in order for you to seize me, I will shed my righteousness. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let it be done. So it cost Jesus everything he was and all of his righteousness to be delivered into the enemy. And the mere fact that these men, the side note, mere fact that these men could even lay hands on him, God in the flesh was proof that he allowed him to do that. Because in the past, if you look at Old Testament, even touching something as pure and holy as the covenant of God or, or something like that would cause instant death because men and women are sinful. And sin cannot exist with God. And so whenever something like that would happen, they would just fall dead. So for them to actually put their hands on Jesus just showed that Jesus shed all of that righteousness and allowed them to do that to him. The cost was high. The cost was high for him to obey his father God. It didn't mean going to church every Sunday. Like it didn't mean simply, you know, giving 10% of his income like he asked us to do. It didn't mean simply not doing certain things, abstaining from certain sins. It didn't mean any of that. For Jesus, it literally meant giving him everything he had, all of his righteousness and glory. But the second question is a little bit more of a challenge to us. That if he did all of that, if he was able to shed all of his righteousness and glory, what is our proper response to that? We have to respond. You will respond in one of two ways, properly or improperly. Improperly would be probably just to ignore the rest of this sermon. Shut me out. Get up and walk out of the room. The proper response is to sit here and see what, what, what God's word says, what the proper response is. And 2 Corinthians tells us, keep going further on in verse, the rest of verse 21. It says, for our sake he, was, he made him who knew no sin. So that means that he was sinless and we know what it cost. So that... In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved church, our proper response to the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his righteousness and was sacrificed for us is to become the righteousness of God. That is the proper response from us. It's not for you to have a better life of Luxury. It's not for you to have a life that is filled with everything that you like and desire. It's not for you to die a happy death in your sleep with no suffering. No. It is for you to become the righteousness of God. What Paul is speaking about here is that when he uses the term righteousness of God, it's a term that is literally explained life-pleasing to God. The righteousness of God is translated as life-pleasing to God. Our proper response is to live a life. That is pleasing to God. And you see it in scriptures throughout the Bible. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. And and when Paul tells us about this this moment in Philippians 1, verse 10 through 11. He says it like this. He says, for I want you to understand what really matters. He's talking to the church in Philippi. He says, I want you to understand what really matters here. So that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day book of Christ's return. Verse 11 says, you may always be filled with his, the fruit of the salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus. For this, you will bring much glory and praise to God. It says that when we live a life that, like that, it actually pleases God. 
that is our worship to God. When we live a life that is, that is righteous, it pleases God very well. And he sees it as a form of worship. So it is our proper response. The problem is, is that many of us, including me myself, don't live a life that's pleasing to God. That we falter at times. At times we, we might not be as perfect as we say we think we are. We were at a men's retreat this past week, and it was one of those moments where we were around the campfire. And I remember talking to the man, and I was saying, like, let me encourage you. You know, you know Romans 8 says that, that we are more than conquerors, and Romans 8 says that, that we need to be men of righteousness. That, and above all these things, we are more than conquerors. But he says that, that even though we're more than conquerors, that these things are still going to try to conquer us. Things like pride and lust and, and things like that in our lives and, and just sinful natures. And I ask everyone, if you would, please just be honest here today. Could you raise your hand and say that you're perfect? If you're not perfect, raise your hand. And I got like five or six guys out of like the 30 that raised their hands. I'm like, seriously? These are some pretty elite men. Either that or they're liars and they, they need to raise their hand. None of us are perfect. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. That's the problem, though. We flirt with sin and we dabble in the temptations of our flesh constantly. We give in to selfish desires and as a result, our life looks nothing like a beautiful offering to God. And let me ask you this, church. If your life after knowing Christ as your Savior was an offering to Him today, would it be pleasing to Him? Like if you were to take your life after knowing Christ, not before that because you know we're all wrecked. For Christ, But after you've committed your life to Christ, if you were to take your life and say, Lord, look at my life. You know every moment, every day, every second, every thought in my mind. Is this going to be pleasing to him? Yes or no? Probably no. Would it be a life that was pleasing to him or a life of maybe some regret? And maybe you live with a little bit of regret. Maybe you should have done this differently. Maybe you should have listened to this elder who was speaking life into you. Maybe you should have done this instead of doing that. Here's the good news, though. The good news is that Jesus does not regret saving you. That even though you might regret the way you lived after he saved you, he does not regret saving you. In fact, it's said in the scriptures that he knew you before you were made. He knows everything about you. So when he came into your life and he saved you and he knew you were going to not be perfect after salvation, he still loved you enough to still go to the cross for you. He does not regret saving you. And he wouldn't have gone willingly to the cross if he didn't. You might regret a life worthy of God, not having a life worthy for God, but he does not regret the life that he gave up for you. Let's think about that for a second. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, sacrifices everything for me and you here today. He stripped himself of his righteousness, his glory. In humility, hung on a cross naked for hours while criminals around him hung with him and spit at him, cursed at him, made fun of him, mocked him with a crown of thorns around his forehead, bleeding the blood of life down past his eyes and into his mouth and down to the sand on the ground. Pierced with nails through his wrists and through his feet, suffocating under the weight of his own body. He did all of that, delivered himself into the hands of evil men. He didn't have to do that. He was righteous enough, but yet he 
chose to do that for us. Stripped of his righteousness and glory for me and for you. He did all of that. He gave all of that to the hand of the enemy so that you and I may never have the hand of the enemy upon our lives. Church, we hear that though. You might get pumped up. You might be like, yeah, Jesus is great. I know, he's great in my life. But you will walk out these doors and you will continue to live a life that is not pleasing to God. And I know that because even as your pastor, I struggle with stuff like that. If I was to tell you I was a perfect man, I'm not. Men, if you were to just admit that you're not perfect, I think we get a lot further along in this walk of, of God. We would understand God's grace so much greater as we continue this. But we cannot continue like that forever. There has to be moments in our lives where we stop and we put safeguards in our lives and we have accountability in our lives to help us become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. Our God is great and he is worthy to be praised by our lives. And our proper response to the delivering of Jesus Christ into the hands of sinful people is to run away from that type of lifestyle. To run away. Listen, if you're struggling in sin, if you're struggling with sin, I want to give you a chance to make it right with God today. I want to give you that opportunity right now. And you're like, oh, but pastor, we don't do altar calls or stuff that much impacts each other. Yeah, but we're going to do one today. Look, in a moment, John's going to come up here. He's going to start making his way up here right now. And he's going to play one more song. And if you need prayer, if you need to just confess something, you need to just come to the altar, you need prayer. Maybe it's for your marriage. Like maybe your marriage is not where it needs to be right now. Maybe you've, you, you've stopped loving your spouse the way that they, they should be. You need prayer for that? We're here. Or maybe you just, you know that your life, maybe you're, you're prideful. Like maybe you're so stinking full of pride that it is oozing out and people see it and they know how disgusting you are because you're full of pride and everything's about you. Or maybe you struggle with just sexual temptations and you can't get past that. Listen, it is not your struggle. It is God's struggle. It is God's battle and God has won the battle already. All you have to do is leave it at the cross. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask uh, if Wayne would be so kind to come up here and pray with me. We'll have two places for you to come up here and pray. Let the elders and the, the leaders here of the church kind of pray over you. As you take, you should come up here and we'll start praying. Let me just pray for you guys. Let's all stand. Lord, I give you praise and I give you thanks for, uh, for those here in this room today. I know that it takes a lot to stand up and, and confess and come forward. Uh, but I also give you praise and thanks for those who stood up and came forward into the doors today. That uh, it takes a lot for some of us to come to church. Uh, I give you praise and thanks for that because I know as a as a young adult, that sometimes I, I find it easier to do things that I want than to come to church. But everyone here today, I, I give you praise for them. And I, I rejoice in that. Lord, I pray for all those, all those requests and those prayers that were said in the hearts of everyone in the seats that I know that you were working on. We lift those prayers up to you today. Those prayers that were pleading 
a desperate prayer like the way your son pled and pleaded for you, a desperate prayer in the garden that night, and that these prayers that were said would be desperate enough for you to hear, desperate prayers, Lord, of, of just weakness and, and need. Lord, and I pray for this church, and I pray for this church to um, continue to, uh, to reach out to this community. I pray for this church to be a, a powerful church, a church that does great things, and I pray for this church to be a, a beacon of light for all of those who are lost and tossed about in the oceans and, and going back and forth. May we be that, that lighthouse to guide you back home and you use us as that here today, Lord. Lord, we love you, Lord, and we praise you. Lord, we lift up this offering for you as well. You continue to provide for your ministry, to provide for this church. Not things that we want, but things that you want for us, things that you need. Not what we want, our selfish desires as a church, but the things that you require for you to be a voice and a light here in this neighborhood. And Lord, we just pray for everyone this week that we uh, understand what it took upon that cross and we understand the cost and that we, we respond properly to that in righteousness the best way we can through Jesus Christ in our lives. In God's name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. You guys have a great, great week.